I'll lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Please help us now to rejoice and to tremble at your word, uh, to set aside any hindrances or distractions from hearing it, and uh, to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ on account of listening to your word. It's, uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was around 23 years ago when I first started to consider this weird possibility that maybe, just maybe, there is such a thing as a God. And, uh, and as I was thinking about that, I would do these little sort of things in my mind where I'd say, hey God, if you're real, then this taxi that I'm waiting for, make it come within the space of, say, three to four and a half minutes. Uh, now, for the young people here, taxi is an old-fashioned word for Uber or uh, <laughs> Didi. Uh, later on, as a Christian, now a follower of Jesus, I, I remember having thoughts that went along the lines of, look, God, I know the whole doubting Thomas thing. You know, Thomas wasn't there the first time that the, the disciples saw Jesus raised, but then later he was, and he, Jesus said, check out the wounds, you know, touch the side, and, and Jesus said to Thomas, um, now that you've seen, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. God, I get that, I know that, but you know, it still would be kind of cool and maybe a bit assuring if you give me some sort of supernatural display that you really are God and Jesus really is the risen Christ. There were other times throughout my Christian life where I've had the thought, you know, in the book of Acts, there's all these miraculous healings and supernatural events that seem to affirm the gospel message. Well, I've never seen some person, for example, touch a woman who's got cancer and then the, the cancer just totally leaves her. I've never heard some guy declare the praises of God in Mandarin Chinese and yet me understand every word that he's saying. I, I've seen videos of the so-called faith healers, you know, the Benny Hins and Todd Whites of this world, but yeah, I know that's all a con. I haven't actually seen real and inexplicable inexplicable visual displays of divine power right in front of me, like it seems that these early Christians often did. So, is the Christianity that I know, is it the really real one? Is it the right deal? And if only I had a sign, just some supernatural display, well then I would know for sure. Now, I wonder if there's been times where, where uh, you might have had similar thoughts similar thoughts to these that I've just shared that I've had, you know, sort of ebbing and flowing throughout the years. Or maybe you're thinking them right now because I've just brought it up. Yeah, why don't we see all that stuff like we do in the Book of Acts sort of thing? Well, friends, as we come to this week's instalment from Matthew's Gospel, we gain an understanding of why it is that genuine belief is not actually especially concerned with supernatural signs. But it is concerned very much with supernatural revelation. Genuine belief is not concerned with supernatural signs, but it is very much concerned with supernatural revelation. Why do I say that and what I mean by that? Well, of course, that's what we're going to find out. Uh, so, let's look at it together. Our opening verse says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Uh, presumably, a sign from heaven would be a sign to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ of Israel. But the reason for the question is not because they genuinely want to believe and see that Jesus is the Christ, but because they want a reason to reject 
and condemn him. And we're not ascribing motive when we say that. We know this to be the case. There are a number of reasons. Firstly, you notice it's both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two sects of Judaism that are so absolutely opposed to each other. Their beliefs about God and God's Word are irreconcilably different. And yet, here they have banded together to, as the words say, test Jesus. Secondly, Jesus has done all kinds of supernatural healings and and, and signs, things that point to his being the Son of God, including in the region that these Pharisees and Sadducees are in. And thirdly, and this is the real nail, nail in the coffin, this is not the first time that this has happened. Back in Matthew chapter 12, which I think it would have been last year in term one we were looking at, but back in Matthew chapter 12, When Jesus was in roughly the same vicinity as he is here, he did a very specific miraculous healing to demonstrate he's the long-expected servant of the Lord who would give sight to the blind and speech to the mute kind of thing. Have a look at it with me, it's on the screen. Uh, From Matthew 12, verse 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the first century Jews will be thinking, this sounds a bit like, you know, a lot of those Isaiah sort of prophecies, you know, that the servant of the Lord is going to give sight to the blind and, and make the lame walk, kind of, you know, that, that sort of vibe. Verse 23, all the people were astonished and they said, and they were right to say, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, basically another name for Satan, that this fellow drives out demons. You see, they don't deny his miraculous power. But instead of making the logical conclusions that point to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, they simply ascribe his ability to evil, demonic forces. Then later on in that very same chapter, Matthew 12, we see that some of the Pharisees, almost certainly the same ones, and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Even though we've just seen one and called you the devil, we want to see a sign from you. And so, of course, verse 39, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was uh, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's a lot of words, but basically Jesus is saying, the reason you guys are asking for a sign is not because you're genuinely interested in believing the truth about who I am, but because you're looking for an excuse to reject me, because you know that I'm a threat to your whole false religious system. Now, once you have that bit of vital information in the background, you can understand why here in in our passage for today, Matthew 16, Jesus is immediately dismissive of these Pharisees and now Sadducees who were testing him. So verse 2, he replied, When evening comes, you say to be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, tomorrow to be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. Very emphatic kind of, I'm done with you guys. In other words, to paraphrase in in silly Ben Pakula, sort of speak, 
To people like you guys, who apparently know and study God's Word, it's patently obvious that I'm the Christ that God had promised. The mute speak, the lame walk, gosh, the Gentiles are even coming and praising God. If you remember from last week's passage, we've got Gentiles who are flocking to figuratively the Temple Mount of the Lord and being healed, right? Praising the God of Israel. If you guys can know that a red and overcast sky means it is about to be a storm, then it should be just as simple for you especially to know that everything I've done points to the, the messianic age being brought in and I'm the one that's doing it. You remember those scumbag, pagan Ninevites from back in the day? They only needed the preaching, and it was very reluctant preaching, of the prophet Jonah and they would repent. You guys have all the Word of God and you know all the powerful signs I've given, but because you want to reject me, no amount of evidence will ever be enough. So tough rocks, you guys get nothing. Mic drop, I'm out of here. Right? That's the, that's the Ben Bacula take on this. And by the way, this has actually consistently been Jesus' approach throughout the time of his earthly ministry. Uh, in John's Gospel, fourth Gospel by way of comparison, we're told that there were people who believed in his name, which sounds really good, on account of the signs that Jesus did. But then immediately we're told that Jesus will not entrust himself to them. And that's because Jesus knew it was possible, nay even likely, for people to be blown away by his signs but not really be interested in the things they signified. In fact, there is one point in John's Gospel where the reason people don't believe in Jesus' word is precisely because they do believe in his signs. See, we say a picture is worth a thousand words. That's not really that true. Almost every art gallery you ever go to, they've got the painting, but there's always this little plaque underneath the painting to tell you what you're looking at, right? To explain what it is going on there. The picture's only worth a thousand words if you know what some of those words are to explain the picture. Jesus' signs are all about affirming and attesting to the Word of God. Remember in Isaiah, we're led to believe, you know, the mute will speak, the blind will see, and so Jesus heals the mute and the blind. He actually affirms the Word of God. But if you're just taken by the fact that they're supernatural and amazing and miraculous, you can be blown away and impressed by that, but actually ignore the reason for which they've been given. When such people are teachers of the Word of God, like these Pharisees and Sadducees. Their obsession with signs is actually an indication they don't believe the Word that they're supposed to be teaching. That's why in the next section, Jesus warns his followers sternly to be on guard against the teaching of these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees. So stay with me. Verse 5, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think there's one time as a kid, I remember baking bread properly and, you know, this sort of like school excursion thing. Is that a thing that people do? I don't know. And uh, I was surprised, yeast is a, is a relatively very small ingredient, but of course it, it sort of spreads throughout the whole lump of dough, which is why in this context it's a great metaphor for false teaching. 
The repeated testing of Jesus for miraculous signs is actually the indication that these people do not believe the word of God that they study. Hence, sooner or later, it must be the case that their teaching will take you away from the Lord rather than draw you to, to ongoing faith. Now, because the disciples forgot to take some bread with them for this part of the trip, we, they got this wacky idea that Jesus is somehow chastising them, which it seems a bit strange when you go through it, right? Jesus sets them straight, of course, by pointing out that he's got no problem of producing an abundance of food. As a matter of fact, he just points to the last two big miracles and lots of basketfuls of bread. And by the end of the conversation, verse 12, they understood that he was telling, uh, not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, all oh, that evil yeast is going to get us, you know, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, why is that in here? It just seems the weirdest, most awkward little conversation, doesn't it? When you hear it read out, like we did just before, as Kerry read it, it sounds a bit ridiculous. But I think it's there to highlight just how radical Jesus' words would have sounded to these disciples. You see, I know we'll take it for granted that the Pharisees and Sadducees have really fatal flaws in their whole approach to God, but that in the day would have been unthinkable. It would be unthinkable that the religious leaders, the ones who made it their life's work to learn and even memorise the Scriptures, could somehow be those whose teaching you need to guard against. But once you realise that the fascination with miracles can very easily be a distraction, an excuse even, for ignoring the Word of God that Jesus himself both taught and came to fulfil, you realise that, yes, you do need to be on your guard against the teaching of those who think that miraculous signs are somehow necessary for having saving faith. And what Jesus says here is actually a big teaching point in the New Testament more broadly. For example, the Apostle Paul later on would point out that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or later from his letter to the Romans, speaking specifically about salvation. Consequently, says Paul, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Again, the writer to the Hebrews, though he rightly points out that God testified to the validity of the gospel message by, quote, signs, wonders and various miracles. He doesn't therefore assume that we need to seek more of those things. As a matter of fact, his main point and that he, is that he insists that we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away, even in the face of those very real miraculous signs. The signs are peripheral and they can be misinterpreted, even to the extent that, well, we're saying you've got the power of Satan, that level of misinterpretation, whereas what we've heard, according to the writer of the Hebrews, that's the essential thing. Friends, Jesus warned his followers to be on their guard against the teaching of those who required miraculous signs to legitimise the word of God, rather than seeing them as a testimony to God's already legitimate word. And in our day and age, sadly, it's still very easy to find Christian teachers for whom displays of supernatural signs are given more credit and attention 
than the real work of the Spirit who communicates truth by the Word of God. Now, it is true that you can know all this stuff, and I suspect I am, by and large, preaching to the choir. It's true that you can know all this stuff, and still, as I have from time to time, think, oh, it would still be awesome to witness some kind of undeniably supernatural, miraculous power directly from the hand of God. And it's also true that God, of course, is capable of doing things like that, and certainly has done so. But be careful what you wish for, or as I should say, be careful what you pray for. See, the Apostle Paul himself was at one point, we're told, caught up to the third heaven and had an unspeakable spiritual experience. We read about this in, in the, uh, 2 Corinthians 12. But lest he then become conceited or think there was something that somehow made him more special in the sight of God, God saw it necessary to give to Paul, quote, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment him so that he would be forced to remember that God's grace alone was sufficient for him. You see, it's not always good or pleasant to witness some supernatural sign, whereas it is always good to trust in God's Spirit-affirmed Word, knowing that He has given us absolutely everything we need to live in accordance with His will. His grace most certainly is sufficient for us. Now, friends, I said at the beginning that uh, this part of Matthew's Gospel shows us we're not to be concerned with supernatural signs, but that we are to be concerned with supernatural revelation. And it so happens that in, in the Scriptures, signs often are subservient to that particular role. So we move now from the negative, the warning against false sign believers, to the positive, the ones who respond rightly to God's revelation about Jesus. This next part of Matthew's Gospel is a real high point of the Gospel. Actually, it's a high point of the Gospels. You see it in, in, in the others as well. It's the point at which His disciples begin to recognise Him as what I'm going to call the gate-crashing Messiah. From verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now if you remember back a few weeks at chapter 14, they have already worshipped Jesus as the divine Son of God at the end of that the walking on the water thing. But that doesn't mean that they can't sort of ebb and flow in their learning and understanding about who Jesus is. It's natural that they are often plagued with doubt throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. They don't have the benefit of hindsight that we do, right? They still didn't get the whole death and resurrection thing, even though He told them. But here it does seem there is something resolute about Peter's response. You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. It's like I'm putting that stake in the ground. And he's happy to, to make that claim, even though he knows that other people have different ideas about who Jesus is. No, I know there's other ideas, but I know this is where I stand. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And that makes Jesus truly excited. Because here's how Jesus sees what has just happened. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, by the way, it's just, just a commonly known wordplay, Petros, sounds like the word for rock, right? Peter, Petros. You are Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Whoa, that's a pretty big response from Jesus. Peter had been with Jesus for most of the time of his public ministry. But even then, according to Jesus, ergo, it is right, it's only because God gave the revelation that he now resolutely affirms that Jesus is the Christ. And it doesn't come during some miraculous thing, it just comes as they're walking and talking. Isn't that incredible? And not only that, Jesus is the Christ, he says, who will build his church on the foundation of on the teaching of the apostles, which we will find out later in Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians 4, and that his church will, in a manner of speaking, gatecrash hell. Now, I used to think that when it says, the gates of Hades will not overcome my church, that it kind of meant something like, well, Jesus' church will always be sort of under spiritual attack, but, you know, in the end, when Jesus returns, we'll, we'll have survived. Now, that's absolutely true. It's true from elsewhere in Scripture, but I don't, that's the point that, I don't think that's the point Jesus is making here. See, Hades is the place of the dead, which includes hell. It can also include heaven, like anywhere that there's dead people, but in this context, I don't think it does, because Jesus' church is opposed to this thing, to this Hades. And here, the gates of Hades won't be able to overcome Jesus' church. But what are gates for? Well, gates are a defensive thing. They had to sort of keep the attackers out of your city. But Jesus says, no, my church is going to... They're not going to overcome my church. You see, the church is made up of those who can't be held by death, but who happen to be united with the one who we're told is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus' church is made up of those whom death and hell cannot keep hold of, because Jesus has gatecrashed the Hades. And that is the truly impressive, supernatural, miraculous work of the Lord. Jesus' death and burial, followed by his resurrection, which of course mimics the experience of, of Jonah, will enable his followers to fear not the schemes of man and even to fear not the power of hell. The Apostle Peter, who receives this glorious revelation, would later go on to write to the church. And he would say to the church, brothers and sisters, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Those souls whom Hades can have no claim on because the gates of Hades will not overcome. And even more wonderfully, Peter would then teach that the same non-flesh and blood revelation by which people come to know Jesus as the Christ is the revelation that is found not in signs, but in the Word of God. The next verse in 1 Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets 
who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the times and circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. Jonah was one of those, by the way. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I'm not told the angels long to look into the miraculous signs of Jesus and the apostles in Acts. They long to look into the Spirit-inspired Word of God that is now being fulfilled and is now saving people on account of them hearing the gospel proclamation. That was the divine revelation from God and it was the same revelation that was given to Peter that became the means by which Jesus built his church. To summarise, God reveals his saving truth by his Christ-centred, spirit-given word. And I couldn't help but chuck in there, I notice that it really comes to those who are not demanding but to those who are humble. Uh, because when it comes to things revealed, especially throughout, throughout Matthew's Gospel, we hear Jesus saying stuff like, praise you, Father, you revealed this not to the wise and learned, but to the little children, the little bumbling people like Peter who so often gets it wrong. This has been revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on you I'm going to build the church. Now, an obvious implication... Uh, for us, of course, is that our faith ought to be not in what can be seen, currently at least, but in what is unseen. Uh, the famous words of Hebrews 11 verse 1 don't actually give a comprehensive definition of faith, but it's a definition nonetheless. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's actually right that the saving recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is something that ultimately comes to all Christians by the supernatural revelation of the Father, by the Spirit, and in accordance with His Spirit-inspired Word, which, of course, we now have written down. There is no need for any kind of supernatural sign in order that we might have genuine faith. And, in fact, the insistence on having a sign could end up being the result of an impoverished or a confused faith. Finally, as we've seen Jesus declare that he would build his church on the foundation of the apostles, beginning with the head apostle, uh, with that whole, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and loose on earth will be... In other words, your teaching will have the effect uh, in eternity that, that you say it will on earth, you know, as the gospel saves people, so they're saved. If it condemns people, so they're condemned, right? Part of taking Jesus at his word then means that we are sent to the notion that we are saved and sanctified by what we might call the apostolic gospel. That's why we use that word in the, uh, the creed, uh, holy and apostolic church. Uh, the apostolic gospel is the gospel that was received and passed on by the apostles. Now, you might think, that, why are you saying that so emphatically? Yeah, of course, you know, the gospel was received by the apostles and, and, and passed on. But, but you see, there are actually whole Christian traditions, so-called, that rely 
not on the gospel passed on by the apostles, but on what's called apostolic succession, the idea that there are people sort of um, chosen by God to be in the same office of the apostles and in the line. Uh, this is prevalent in Roman Catholicism, it's also prevalent in Mormonism. You've got to have kind of like someone who's responsible for bringing the revelation of God to bear upon the people of God in every generation, in every day and age, apostolic succession. It's a huge idea and it is hugely unbiblical because flesh and blood did not reveal <laughs> that Jesus is the Christ. It's the Spirit, it's the Father, it's the one who's given us the Word. You can't institutionalise truth in the office of sinful people. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us that we know truth and that we acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we, just as Jesus said to his disciples, then we need to be on our guard against bodies of teaching that presuppose that the truth about Jesus is kind of reinvented each generation or that you need a guru to tell you all that you need to know in order to be saved. That's the kind of thing that I think the Word of God here applies to us very specifically today. Brothers and sisters, you have no need that anyone should teach you if you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And you have the Word, which is the sword of the Spirit, which gives you absolutely everything you could ever possibly need to live a life of godliness and salvation here and now. And so, friends, praise God that he reveals saving truth by his Christ-centred, spirit-given word. And praise God, therefore, that there's no such thing as kind of levels of spiritual guru, you know, like, I know more, therefore I'm more in the kingdom of God than you, or I've got the office of apostolic succession, therefore I can declare things to be, you know, invi inviolate in the word of God. No, 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 no. You all have the word of God, you all have the spirit of God. There's no kind of tiered system which is a really beautiful and wonderful thing friends are going to conclude in prayer you might have questions or comments that you can um let me know on your uh, qr code thing let's pray heavenly father we thank and praise you for your son our savior the lord jesus christ we thank you for the saving revelation we have that jesus is indeed the christ and that that revelation is given by your spirit inspired word and therefore we have absolutely everything we need for life and godliness Father, when we're tempted to seek things beyond your word in order to give us assurance, may we instead, uh, by the power of your spirit at work within us, know that we can be sure about what is unseen. Know that we can be confident about our unseen hope. Know that we can trust your word just as Peter did. And uh, Father, please help us to guard against anything that would uh, give unnecessary credence and credit to the supernatural signs but not to your supernatural revelation we ask these things in jesus name amen